All right, you know him from Blue Gold Illustrated. If you're a Notre Dame fan whatsoever or if you're interested in their program, I suggest following him at BGI underscore Coach D. He's Brian Driscoll, X's and O's analyst at Blue Gold Illustrated, ready to talk some Notre Dame with myself, Nick Shepkowski, and Pete Fusek. Who's interested in Notre Dame? Like, is, Do people care about Notre Dame? I know, a, you're a, Mr. That's a little program, a little engine that could program, isn't yeah. it? They're not very big, are right. they? Right, you're Mr. We'll carry the water for Michigan and everything Harbaugh. I so we'll get like to that in Michigan. a little bit, They're I'm sure. Okay. All right, Pete. But without further ado, he's Brian Driscoll. What's up, Coach? D, what's going on? Uh, not much. I'm just waiting for Michigan to score an offensive touchdown against Notre Dame. You know, I mean, it doesn't really happen that often the last few times we've played. So uh, we've seen them play. So I'm just ready to talk a little Notre Dame football here. Yeah, so are we. They're a team that obviously last year not many people were picking whatsoever to go to the college football playoff. They benefit from everyone being a, bad on their schedule. That was part of it, but they were a team. Michigan. <laughs> exactly. That was, uh, that was part of it, but they were a surprise team. Nonetheless, I have this team pegged as one that might actually be more talented, but the record might not show it. Am I crazy in that thinking? I've pretty much said the same thing. I have Notre Dame at 10 and two right now. And I think the thing that helped Notre Dame last year is they played some pretty good teams contrary to, to popular belief and misguided opinions, but the, the reality is none of those games were played on the opposing team's field. You know, Syracuse was at the Yankee Stadium. They got Michigan at home, and they got Stanford at home. So I think that benefited, whereas this year it's the exact opposite. You could argue that the three toughest games Notre Dame is going to play this year are all on the road when you look at Georgia on September 21st. You have Michigan in October, and then you finish the season at Stanford. So I think I think that kind of factors into it, and, and it's not a brutal schedule. You have six, seven, eight, nine really, really good teams, but it's a consistently good schedule, and when you play a schedule like that, there's a chance that someone's going to trip you up, and it reminds me of the 2016 Clemson team where they beat some really good teams that year, Auburn and Florida State, and then who, who beats them in November? Pitt at home. You know, and that's just when you play good teams week after week, sometimes that can happen. So I, I think that's going to be the, the, the tough part for Notre Dame this year, and I think they're young at the right places that could cost you, you know, maybe a game, a closer game at some point. And, that, and that's the dangerous part about this schedule. You mentioned the, the three big games everyone's going to focus on at Georgia, at Michigan, and then at Stanford. Uh, it's a better Cardinal team this year. So that's obviously the big three in the slate, but your friends with benefits relationship with the ACC, those home games are talking. Virginia's nasty. That's a good it's a week after that, Georgia, too. That might be the second best team in the ACC. Virginia Tech's not going to be uh, as bad as it was last year. Boston College is always tough. I think Louisville is going to make a big bounce back this year. I don't know if Notre Dame's going to lose to them in the opening game, but still, that's a little bit of a dangerous game. And then outside of the ACC, you get USC at home. That's not going to be a bad USC team again. So obviously, you, you kind of look at the schedule and say, yeah, you know, they could win this. They're going to win this. But that, there's a lot of nasty home games to deal with this year. And the timing of it, too. You mentioned Virginia coming right after Georgia. So there's one, it's going to go one of two ways, right? Either there's the letdown after beating Georgia. Or two, there's the emotional recovering from losing to Georgia, right? Same thing with playing at Duke. You know, Duke's, Duke's a team where, you know, football's about matchups, right? And I know people love to look at stats and all this kind of stuff. But stats are ind- indicative of matchups, right? And when you look at Duke, they can run the ball. They have two really good running backs in Deion Jones and Britton Brown. They have a, a really good young defensive line coming back and a really active secondary. Well, you know, that's a week after you play Michigan. 
you know, in Virginia Tech and, or excuse me, USC, Michigan, and Virginia Tech and back-to-back-to-back games. Then you've got to go on the road to Duke in November. And those are one of those games where you're going to overlook them. It's not going to be a big live stadium like you're used to playing in. And is that a game where maybe the team gets tripped off? And then you've got Navy and Boston College. So are you overlooking Boston College before you're about to go play Stanford? So there's a lot of those potential trip-up or trap games on the schedule. And that, to me, that's what makes the schedule tough. And for all the talk about like how Alabama's got a tough schedule, Playing three or four really good teams and then a bunch of nothing is not a tough schedule. Tough schedules for me are those schedules where week after week after week you're playing a team that can beat you, and that's why I have so much respect for whoever wins the Big 12 on a consistent basis because you can't duck a Big 12 team like the SEC can duck an SEC team. You know, when was the last time Alabama played Georgia in the regular season or Florida in the regular season? So, uh, that to me is what makes a schedule. Tough. Yeah, they still get Tennessee. To I mean, I'm I, I'm with you. You had me. You had me at hello, and then you lost me, and you start dogging Tennessee, SEC. Don't that, don't, don't yes, go to Tennessee. You've got to play fullback. You got to play LSU. You got to play LSU and Auburn and Mississippi State. And, and but I, but I digress. But you're assuming all of those teams are always good every single they year. They kind of are pretty. good. Good everything. Tennessee's not very good. Yeah, lately. right. That's, that's the wrong that, one to go to if you're going to use your example. There, there's your one, but Al, but Alabama's. <laughs> I'm not going to dog them for that, considering that the schedule's not that. But to the to the point though, the problem with for Notre Dame, and I don't know how the fans kind of see this is okay. You know, forgetting Alabama's schedule, actually, I would argue on the flip side, the Clemson schedule is the one that looks is really ridiculously soft, considering okay, we just praise these ACC teams, but a lot of these teams are a lot beatable, and you can see in the the early co- uh, coaches poll that there's just no respect for the ACC this year. So with that well, in mind... Certain, the ACC has fallen off the cliff the last couple of years, but where I'll give Clemson credit as opposed to what some... And there are some SEC teams I respect. I love LSU because they're willing to go out of conference and go on the road and play at Texas, you know, and, and go on the road and play teams like that. Georgia being willing to go to Notre Dame uh, two years ago. I, I like teams like that, you know, and, and when you look at Clemson, they're a team that scheduled a home-and-home with Texas A&M. They played Auburn in a home-and-home. They're not going to neutral site games. Uh, and I'm talking specifically about Alabama's schedule, not necessarily SEC, because you look at Texas A&M, they're playing Clemson in a home-and-home. Yep. They're not doing a neutral site game with Duke and then playing a couple FBS, FCS teams. You, you know what I mean? And that's what I'm talking about. So uh, some of the teams I respect, some I don't. And so when I'm pointing specifically to Alabama in this instance – uh, not necessarily on SEC, but when you know Clemson's a product of the fact that there's the league is down. They're trying to schedule hard, but the when down. Florida State and Miami so are supposed to be good, yeah, like and that's run the table. Yeah, with, it's, it's like you're, the old miss, you're missing big your ten. two big boys. You're missing Florida State, right. Miami, and so when they're down, it's the perceptions down. But more than right. that, though, forgetting the schedule for the moment, like after what happened to Notre Dame against Clemson. Uh, in the in the college football playoff, they're still they got there. Give them all the credit in the world. They've been able to get to the college football playoff. They got to a BCS championship under Brian Kelly, and then just were so badly outclassed. Is there a really? sense of well, they got their they got their doors blown off by the Tigers and the Did Tide? Did you watch the game? Uh, this game against Clemson. Yeah, they lost badly. You mean the game was nine three with a minute forty five left? Yeah, but then it's kind of got. Uh, they couldn't move the ball lick. Well, it's, that's that's no, kind of. Notre Dame's offense played terribly against Clemson. Go talk to the Clemson players. I know some sources. I know people in Division One coaching. I used to be a coach. I've talked to people after the Notre Dame Clemson game. I know friends that are connected to the Clemson program and told me that was the matchup they were worried about. Everybody's saying, "Oh, they're just saying that because." 
So Alabama's throwing shade. No, I was hearing this back in December and January that Clemson had talked about, look, that was a much tougher offense than Alabama was. What? Now, Notre Dame's offense is not where it needs to be. I mean, you, can, you can say what, but I'm just telling you what coaches and people at Clemson are saying. Notre Dame's offense, and I've written about this at Blue and Gold a lot. Right now, Notre Dame's offense is not at a level where you say that's a team that can compete for a championship. And we saw that in the Cotton Bowl. We saw guys getting open, and we had, you had a quarterback that couldn't make the throws. They couldn't establish a running game against Clemson like they could against other teams. We saw that against Georgia two years ago. Notre Dame's offense, phenomenal rushing team, averaged almost 270 yards a game. But in the game against Georgia, they couldn't get that line of scrimmage going. I think defensively, they showed last year, they're at a level where they can compete for championships. What but offense did they the play against last that year that level, was any good in the regular season? What's that? Which offense did they play in the regular season that was any good? Well, Syracuse was averaging 44 points a game in November, and they held them to three. They held Michigan to 10 offensive points. They held Stanford to 17 offensive points. And you go again, go watch the game. Go talk to people at Clemson. That was a game where Notre Dame gave Clemson a lot of problems. Clemson about four or five big plays, three of which happened while Julian Love was on the sideline. Yeah, I, I thought that game I mean, that, was – that's a part of it. was Clemson's defensive line was monsters. They were better than advertised. And I thought that it was a exhibit A in depth of when you compare the Alabamas, the Clemsons of the world, to pretty much everyone else. You see what one injury affected Notre Dame. Julian Love goes out and, oh, my God, have your day with throwing on the secondary. Yep. Clemson loses their best or second-best defensive lineman, and it's, eh, Put in the all next right. guy. Yep, Ian Book's still going to be laying on his ass most of the day or panicked most of the afternoon that he was in Dallas. Speaking of Ian Book, though, how does he avoid like what's been the year two, I don't want to say curse, but the rough patch that seemingly every quarterback has had under Brian Kelly at Notre Dame in year two of their run? Because he was nothing short of great for the regular season last year, and it just hasn't been the case for whatever reason in Brian Kelly's tenure that he gets a second straight good year out of his starting quarterback. Why is it going to be different for Ian Book, or why won't it be different for him this year? Well, I, don't, I think until we see a quarterback do it for year two, I'm not going to say definitively it's going to happen, right? I mean, we've seen Deshaun Kaiser, Everett Golson. We've seen a lot of these guys take a step back. And the common theme for me has been in year two, they try to do too much. And it's a part coaching problem. Uh, it's a part of a player problem. You know, Deshaun Kaiser trying to do too much, trying to do it, run a too-complex system. That was a coaching decision. And then Deshaun didn't do what he needed to do. Same thing with Everett Golson. You know, he was a kind of – Brian Kelly said, you know, you're, you're not driving the bus in 2012. You're in the passenger seat. The defense is driving the bus. Run the ball. Get the ball to Tyler Eifert, those kind of things. And then they asked him to carry the team in his second year as a starter. So I think the first thing is Chip Long not doing too much where you're putting so much on Ian's shoulders is step one. And then Ian's got to continue to develop his game because as we saw late in the year – and this started to happen to Deshaun Kaiser late in 2015, teams start to see, okay, here's what he's good at, and here's what he's not good at. For example, you go look at the Clemson game. Notre Dame had an efficient run, which is four yards or more, or a first down or a touchdown on six of their first ten, ten runs, which is a really high efficiency rate. Well, that's, then they go back after a couple series, and they look at it and say, look, Boykin was open on a post route for what probably would have been a touchdown. He, didn't, he wasn't willing to make the throw. A couple other deep shots, he wasn't able to connect. So Clemson basically said, okay, we're going to run stunt, we're going to load the box, and you're not going to run on us. Right? And then, so then, Notre, then he couldn't make those throws. So he's got to get to the point where he can make some of those tougher throws that force defenses to respect both parts of the game 
Because late in the year, that's just what teams did. Hey, you're not going to run on us. We're going to make you beat us with your arm. Teams like USC and Syracuse and, and Northwestern, they weren't good enough to force Notre Dame to do that and still beat them. Clemson was. And so that's why I say until Notre Dame can get the offense to that level, they're a team that can compete for championships on one side of the ball but not on the other. And when you look at teams like Clemson, you look at teams like Alabama, they're teams that not only have explosive offenses, but they have very good defenses. But if you look at the championship games, these aren't 17 to 14 games like it used to be. These are games where the winner of that game between Clemson and Alabama, when they fight for the title, has scored, I think, at least 35 points each time. You have to be able to score when you play teams that are like that, and Notre Dame so far hasn't proven that they can do that. So what's missing with Ian Book then? Because he was ultra-efficient. He didn't take a whole lot of shots down the field. His completion percentage was good. It always seemed, The Northwestern game particularly, it always seemed like Northwestern had him. This is when the game's going to turn, and he did something. He moved the chains. He got the, the offense moving. So in his game, what is missing for him? Because now he's got to, like you said, he's got to kind of be the man now a little bit more as opposed to just being a game manager. What specifically is missing from his game and how has he stepped up in as what you've been able to see so far uh, this offseason? Well, I think the Northwestern game, it's funny you bring that game up because I think that's the epitome game of if, if what we saw from Ian Book in that game in the second half. If you can get that from him on a consistent basis, that, that, that team's going to be really hard to beat. It was a 7-7 game going into halftime against a defense that I think for the Big Ten was a pretty quality defense. Now, we saw that against Ohio State in the second half against Notre Dame, but they have some speed problems. But what you saw in that game is you saw Ian Book start to get the ball downfield. He had a twenty, a gorgeous 20-yard touchdown pass to Miles Boykin. He hit Michael Young on a 47-yard touchdown deep. I think thrown three-yard line. He throws a goal route one-on-one to Chase Claypool. And once he started hitting those throws, Northwestern couldn't just say, we're going to load the box up and take Miles Boykin and Dexter Williams out of the game. And so then you saw Notre Dame go out and score 24 points in the second half against a pretty quality defense, and their offense was really hard to beat. He made that play. But what we, what the problem for Ian is he hasn't been able to consistently make those tougher throws. You'll get, for example, he makes a great play at the end of the game for the game-winning touchdown on a post route, but it was his inability to hit those throws for three quarters that required him to have to hit that throw to begin with. So I, I think that's it. Is you mentioned his efficiency, he's a good decision maker. He can move to chains with his legs, but to beat the better teams on the schedule, to beat Georgia. Uh, to beat Stanford on the road, to beat Michigan on the road, to be able to win a playoff game or a New Year's Six Bowl game, you've got to be able to make some of those tougher throws, that deep drag over top of a defender or fitting a seam route, you know, high-low between the backers and the safeties or getting the ball over top that we've seen Trevor Lawrence make, that we've seen Tua make in some of those big games, that we saw Deshaun Watson make or Baker Mayfield make and those kind of things. So until he can make those throws, then you're going to see the offense struggle to, to play at that, high, at that high level against those teams. Because no matter how good your offensive line is, if you're one-dimensional, you're not going to run the ball. Go look at the Georgia game. Notre Dame couldn't throw the ball that game, so Georgia just came at them and there was nowhere to run. You have to be, in my opinion, a balanced offense to really play at a level where you can beat a so does, is, is Georgia, win a playoff. So do, why can't Brian Kelly necessarily get that cream of the crop quarterback I know he's he's come up with a couple of good recruits over the last few years but uh so what does book have that that some of these other guys he's been able to bring in don't seem to have I mean he signed like five top 100 quarterbacks yeah. during his tenure it's not about landing those guys it's about developing those guys but recruiting people let's say this about Alabama right and you hear non-Alabama fans say talk well they win because they have better players 
anyone that's coached football like I have will say, yeah, they have better players, but they're really well coached. And that's been a hallmark of Nick Saban's team. You go back to the 09 team that had like three or four two legitimate two-star players playing on their defense, yet they were elite on defense because they knew how to play the game. And so for me, Notre Dame hasn't been able to get that level of development at quarterback. You know, you've seen a top 100 quarterback like um, Gunnar Peel doesn't pan out. Well, Trans- yep. Everett Bolson, really talented, can't take that next step. Malik Zaire, highly ranked player, gets hurt. God, going way back, Jimmy Clausen even, even before his era. That was the one of (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but Jimmy Clausen was a a really good player. Brandon Wimbush, number 60 player in the country, has a great start to his career. First nine starts, Notre Dame's averaging 40 points a game. They're 8-1. He fell off a cliff and was never the same again. So, you know, uh, Phil Jerkovic, top 100 player. They've got a commitment in 2020 from a top 100 quarterback. they got a commitment in 2021 from a top 100 quarterback. So it's not about landing the talent. It's about developing the talent, finding guys that fit your system. And I think that's part of it, too, is the inconsistency in what they do offensively. You recruit a kid that can do something, and then you change who you are, and now that kid no longer fits what you do. So uh, I think that's where Chip Long has helped. He's established an identity, and his offense is very much built on – Spread the ball. Take what the defense gives you. Get it out to the playmakers. And what makes Ian Book effective is he can do that. He's kind of like when we talked about this on our show last week. He's kind of like an old school point guard. You guys remember back like in the '80s and '90s, point guards weren't scoring like 28 a game. They were dropping like 12, 13 assists. They were. You guys had David Rivers way back in the day. He was he was putting up some points back for your Irish way a million years Who? ago. David Rivers, old point guard. Okay, way I'm, back in the day. I'm talking, I'm talking 1980s here. A million years. I'm just, I'm sorry. I Pete's an old fart. I'm sorry. To, yeah. I'm old. I'm yeah, talking oh, Notre Dame point guards, Chris oh. Thomas, my go-to, there you by go. the way. Defensively. That's kind of how Ian is at, at quarterback. He's a distributor. Take what they get. And I think what's going to help, what's going to have to help in this year is last year the receivers were guys that, I said this, they do their best work before and at the point of the catch. Once the catch is made, they're not going to do a whole lot else. Well, you, when you're running an up-tempo spread RPO-based offense, you need guys that can make plays. And so that, to me, is more where the offense was lacking last year because, you know, you need a guy that can say, hey, run, run a little quick screen, and all of a sudden you turn it into a 30-yard gain. Clemson can do that. You know, Alabama can do that. Notre Dame doesn't have that guy and hasn't really had that guy since Will Fuller. So that's really what, to me, more so what's missing from the offense. Hmm. You could probably talk offense and some of the questions with it all night long. Defensively, I'll say three names, Tillery, Tranquil, and Love. One person at each level of the defense, skill-wise, talent-wise, leadership-wise, all were looked to 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 be that for this team last year. Who's going to be missed the most of that group, and who's the most replaceable in terms of what's coming in next for this squad? You know, it's funny. Somebody asked me that question about an hour ago. They asked me really? that question. I went with, I went, yeah, I went with Tranquil first just because I think when you look at Tranquil, it's, it's not just who was the better player. Tranquil was an outstanding player, very talented player. Uh, but it was also what's coming next. And, the, and what's behind him is, is a talented player in Jack Lamb, but he's a redshirt freshman who's never played a snap of football. That's a big jump, you know, big loss in experience. I think when you look at Jerry Tillery, defensive tackle is a position that's, that rotates so much, you know, you're going to play two or three guys anyway. Drew Tranquil never came off the field. And when you look at Julian Love, he was an outstanding player. Uh, the key there is Dante Vaughn. You know, Dante Vaughn was in the same class as Troy Pride and Julian Love. And when they were freshmen, Dante Vaughn was actually their best player. He's been banged hurt the last two years. 
And we saw that in, in the uh, the Cotton Bowl. He's a kid at a bum shoulder. He can't press. Well, when you're 6'3 and your game is about pressing and you can't press because you have a bum shoulder, then you're not going to be effective. Well, he had surgery. He's healed. And he's been really excellent in fall camp. We were at Notre Dame today, and he gave up one completion the entire practice. The offense at, some, at one point in time just started throwing at Troy Pride because they were just – I mean, they couldn't get open against Dante Vaughn. If he can stay healthy – that eases that loss of love. It's not to say he's as good as Julian Love, but he helps kind of ease that loss. Same thing at defensive tackle. They're going to be protected by arguably the best defensive end rotation in the country. And if you don't want to believe me, go look at pro football focus numbers. They're the only team in the country with three ends that rank in the top 30 in pass rush ability and run stop rate. The only team. And so that can help protect the tackles, but you can't protect the, the linebackers the same way that you can kind of overcome those other losses. Do you, do you really have to protect the tackles, though, the, with this team? It seems like one of the un, underappreciated parts under uh, Brian Kelly has been his ability to just kind of reload a tackle on the inside. I know it's not it, – in some places it's a glamour spot, but even at Notre Dame, offensive tackles become a little bit of a glamour position. Obviously, everyone wants to focus on the offense, but defensive tackle has really been strong. Do they have that this year? Do you guys have that this year? Well, they don't have the proven player, and that's really where I'm coming from. You don't have that Jerry Tillery who's a three-year starter. None of the guys on the current roster started a game. Now, Myron Tung, Valone, Kurt Heinz have been rotation players each of the last two years. Well, Notre Dame went and played Georgia two years ago. They were the number three and number four D tackles. So they've got the experience, but I always get a little nervous when Notre Dame, I, I wrote this during preseason, they might be talented as defensive tackle on the first, second, and third team as they've been under Brian Kelly. The problem, however – is beyond the two starters, it's freshmen and sophomores. And, and I'm okay with freshmen and sophomores dominating running back, receiver, corner, because you can just rely on athleticism. But when it's a position that relies on strength and power, and you're talking about a guy that are only a year or two into the strength program, that's when I get a little bit more nervous. And so that's the only reason I'm a little hesitant at defensive tackle uh, is just because of the youth, but it's certainly a talented group. All right, wrapping this up a little bit here. Notre Dame, you put their resume against anyone in the country the last two years, and they probably only fall short against who? Bama, Clemson, Oklahoma, since they've gone to the playoff Ohio twice. Ohio State. Ohio State, maybe. They're in that discussion. Whatever it is, it's on a real short list. You factor in three years, though, in 2016 into the equation, it's an entirely other story because of the disaster that was. How close is Notre Dame to be either closing that gap to the truly elites or falling back to not like – mediocrity but not quite this top five or top ten program in the country i think they're certainly closing the gap i think there's still a significant gap when you look at that consistency of dominance because here's the difference between notre dame and clemson and alabama and and to me they're in a in sort of a league of their own i don't put oklahoma in that league either because oklahoma hasn't won one of those playoff games either And, and so when i look at it i say okay Notre Dame has almost beat number one Florida State back in 2014. They almost beat Clemson in 2015. You know, they played Ohio State, didn't get it done, went to the playoffs, didn't get it done. They significantly improved as a program, but until you can beat one of those teams, you can't really say you're in that conversation. And when you look at when they beat Oklahoma back in 2012, that was a different Oklahoma program as what it is now. It was good but it wasn't what it is now. So I think that, to me, is they have to prove it, that they can beat one of those teams. And, and I don't care how good Michigan is or how high-ranked Michigan is. It doesn't, it's not the same because it's a regional game. They're not Ohio State. They have to prove a lot, too, 
it has to be beating Duke. It has to be getting into a, a power, you know, a, a New Year's Six game and winning that game. And the reason I think they've closed the gap is because they've recruited the defensive line as well as I've seen in 20 years. I mean, you're talking about in the, in the last two or three years, they've signed more at many four-star defensive tackles and defensive ends as they had signed for you know, the last previous five years combined. I mean, and just the consistency of landing a four-star, four-star year after year. And we haven't seen Notre Dame do that in a long time. And, and I'm a believer that you have to be able to play in the trenches to really compete at that level. Skill's great. you got to have skill and their recruiting skill. Uh, right now in Notre Dame's 2020 class, they have five offensive players that are in the Rivals 100. They've never signed more than three. Uh, they have a running back coming in from Virginia who has twice won the fastest man competition at the opening. He's also for two years in a row was the fastest person in the country in the 55-meter dash in his class. So they're adding that impact skill. But the defensive line recruiting, to me, is what has them in a place where they are, they've really closed that gap. But until they can actually kick that door down and actually win one of those big games, then there's always going to be the people that doubt them no matter what they do. They'll make excuses about the schedule, this, that, and the other. And until Notre Dame actually wins one of those games, there's not a lot they can say to quiet those, those skeptics. I'm still mad that they got that call against them against Florida State and the pick play at the end of that game. You, you said that you think that they're going to go 10-2. and two. I'm assuming you're saying in that two losses, you're probably going to say Georgia. Which one? Is it kind of just a general because the schedule looks uh, pretty tough across the board that there's just going to be a random second game, or is there a second game on there that you think is going to be the real tough matchup for them besides the Bulldogs? I think you nailed it. I think it's, I, you know, I don't think it'll be Michigan. I don't think it'll be Stanford. I think it'll be some other game where you're like, oh my, how did you lose that game because of that, of what we talked about? And, and look, I think Notre Dame is better than everyone on their schedule that's not named Georgia. When you just look at their talent, top to bottom, and it's in my opinion, it's recruiting rankings, you know, it's, it's pro football focus, whatever you want to, whatever metric you want to use that's not being given to you by some Notre Dame guy. They have a, a better roster than everybody they play except for Georgia. But last year was nice. But for me, there's still a lot Brian Kelly has to prove as a coach that he can actually get the most out of his team. As good as 2017 was when you look at the 10-3, and three, there were some games on there they shouldn't have lost. I'm sorry, they shouldn't have lost to Miami. Miami was not that good that year. They yep. played terrible. They they shouldn't have lost to Stanford. you know. And, and so they've got to tell me that, that was last year – like 2012, where it was just kind of everything fell into place? Or are they in a position where they can have some sustainability and win that 10th game and 11th game in a year? Now, if they can knock down that door again this year and win 11 or, you know, games, then, then I'm fine. But the reason I'm not going to pick 12-0, and 0, no matter, even if I thought they were better in Georgia, is, guys, for all of Notre Dame's history, they've never had a back-to-back undefeated season. So, I mean – there's been some great Notre Dame. Wow, is that true? So, I, I guess it, I, I guess it, yeah, that. yeah. that's pretty now, amazing. Back, back in the you know era of our season, they had ties. So if you have a tie, yep. considered you're not undefeated. None of Leahy's teams did that. I guess they probably tied too. What's that? Uh, Leahy's teams didn't he have like a run in the four? I guess those were probably ties too that were factored in. Yes, but you had ties, and so you you're not unbeaten when you have a tie. So you think of like the 1966 team, sure, that, under era that won a national championship. They tied Michigan undefeated. State. Yeah, God, so it's considered not undefeated. Teams are, it's a little wow. different, that's, you know. Dynamic, that's a fun stat. But the the point is, they have to prove. By, that's courtesy loose emoji, by the way, who is the preeminent <laughs> historian of Athens, Oregon, BGI. I didn't come up with that on my own. 
but but to me, that's the thing is they have they they have to prove to me. Brian Kelly has brought this program so much further than where it was when he took over, and in every capacity, recruiting. Uh, you look at the facilities; they have facilities that can can match those programs. They just built this huge new indoor practice facility, the the field, the, the stadium. But I still need to see him that he can do. You know what a Lincoln Riley did, which is you lose Baker Mayfield, you lose Orlando Brown, you lose Mark Andrews, and you're still able to reload and go out there and, and get back to that level. Clemson has shown that. They can lose Deshaun Watson, Shaq Lawson, Kevin Dodd. It doesn't matter who they lost. And then the next year you're still really good. You're still in the playoffs. Alabama has shown that. Notre Dame hasn't shown me that. And so until they do, if I'm looking at objectively, I have to have some skepticism about their ability to go – 11 and one and beat all the teams they're supposed to beat. So do you think Brian Kelly has hit a ceiling? I, it's hard to say. I'm not going to, that's kind of the wrong way to put it considering he just came off a long beaten season and college football playoff. But do you feel like there's almost like a, he's almost topped out Is this as good as they can do? Or uh, is there like, a, I'm just going to throw the name out urban Meyer, just as that level of a coach. Cause it's Notre Dame and you should be able to get any coach you want. Again, I'm just going to kind of ask, even as absurd as this sounds, so forgive this question this way, is this is last year about the tops that Brian Kelly can get to, which is get to the college football playoff, but maybe not take that extra step? Or where do you see his era going from here? I actually think that's a very fair question. I think when you look at it, you say, he's in year 10. You know, what else more can he do? And I'll be honest with you, I think the 2016 season was the best thing to ever have for Brian Kelly. Because I think he'd, got, he'd gotten stale. And that happens in Notre Dame. Happened to Lou Holtz. Happened to Eric Partesian. Notre Dame is a rough place. And you're, you're drawn in so many different directions, and you have to speak all over the country, and you got all these boosters and people that are paying millions of dollars to have their name on your head coach, you know, the so-and-so head coach, Brian Kelly. And so there's those responsibilities. And I think he lost the program. I think he had kind of turned it over to the assistants and was not as involved, and then 4-8 and eight happens. And when 4-8 and eight happens, as long as you – if you keep your job after 4-8, you can't just say, well, we tweak a couple things here and there. He completely overhauled his program. And we're going into year three of that overhaul. You know, strength conditioning, completely overhauled. He hired a guy that was with Urban Meyer at Utah and Florida. You know, a guy that, that is, is very well respected. And we've seen the fruits of that. He brought in Chip Long, who says, we're going to be up-tempo, but we're going to be a, a team that can run the football. You bring in a Mike Elko, who brought with him Clark Lee. You're seeing the recruiting on an uptick. So I think that re-energized him. And I think we're just starting to see him really tap into that. So when I watch Notre Dame today, I see a team that's young in some areas, but this is the longest, most athletic and deepest team Brian Kelly's ever had. Now, do they, can they, can they turn that into wins? We'll find out, but there's a, there's, there's going to be some guys they lose next year. It's like, here's a great example. Isaiah Foskey's a, a defensive end coming in from De La Salle out in California prominent program he's 6'5 he's 250 he looks like a college junior three years ago he's playing I mean it's from the day he steps foot on campus he's playing this year he probably won't see the field except some mop-up duty because that's how far we've seen this team come guys that would have been major players you know three four years ago now are, are waiting their turn isn't that what happens at Clemson isn't that what happens at Alabama so they're getting to that level so I think he has an ability to take it to that next level. But, again, he's got to prove it. So I don't think he's hit his ceiling for what he can do, but whether or not he can take that next step remains to be seen. I don't know if that, that last part makes sense. I don't think they've hit their ceiling because of the way they've recruited. And when you look at the class that's coming in, I mean, it's a big-time class coming in with especially offensive firepower. 
But I still need to see that Brian Kelly can take that and mold it into a team that can go do what Dabo's done at Clemson. Because I think that Alabama's at a completely different level. And, and for all the talk about how Clemson recruits, Clemson's had one top five class in the last five years. One. They had a class two years ago that was ranked 17th. But they get the right kids, they develop them, and they go out and win. And I think Notre Dame can be sort of that. But they've got – they're just a guy or two away. I just get Trevor Lawrence. Just get Trevor Lawrence and everything will be just well, fine. Let me ask you a question, though. Let me, serious question. If you go back to Notre Dame's 2017 team, when you look at the offensive line they had, Amazing. two top ten draft picks, Josh Adams, 1,400-yard rusher, a defense that had, what, seven or eight pros on it. You put Lamar Jackson at quarterback on that team, what's Notre Dame's record? Downright scary. I well, mean, the thing, though, is, but the only but, problem but, that, that with but, that ex- exact uh, instance would be Lamar Jackson sort of takes away from everyone. That was kind of the Louisville problem is that he kind of put everything on his shoulders. I get what you're saying. You put a, you put right, a great quarterback you, with but, that group but, and look out, I when, guess is what you're saying. When you put that on his shoulders and sure. he's got Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey yeah, look and out. Alex Bars, and you, you get what I'm saying? And so yeah. my point is, when you can say that, that tells me, well, maybe this team isn't that far away. You you switch quarterbacks in the Cotton Bowl, what happens in that game? Well, yeah, and that's a, that's a guy that's probably going to be a first overall pick, too. I mean, two years right. from now. But if you switch quarterbacks with, you know, with NC State, I don't know if the score Wait, so you're saying that if, if Notre Dame had Trevor Lawrence last year, they beat Clemson? I'm saying they would have absolutely had a chance to be Clemson. You look at what Miles, you know, you have a third-round pick in Miles Boykin. You've got a, a draftable tight end. You've got a draftable running back. You've got an NFL player in the offensive line. And you put a kid like Trevor Lawrence in there, absolutely. They lose 30-6, to six, I think, instead of 30-3. to three. I mean, That, no, that was I'm a pretty that was a pretty good Clemson defense at the end of the day. I'm not – right, but Clemson doesn't score 30 on Notre Dame if Ian Book is their quarterback because – Oh, I got you. I got, I got you. Okay, yeah. now I'm with you. Although right? probably Brian's still probably there and he gets a ring then. And then, then, then that controversy goes You away. have a chance to beat Notre Dame with a Trevor Lawrence. Sure. And my point being that when you can make that kind of argument, you know, if you say, well, if, 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 if Alabama and Arkansas switch quarterbacks, Alabama's still crushing Arkansas, right? So my point is when you can just say Notre Dame's a guy or two here away, it tells me they're close, but they're not there yet. Because guess what? They don't have Lamar Jackson. They don't have Trevor Lawrence. And that's the point I'm making. They've got to be able to sign and develop those impact players at those key spots. And I still believe college football is a quarterback-driven league. And when you look at the playoffs, you have Kyler Murray, Tua Tagovailoa, Trevor Lawrence, and Ian Book. One of those things is not like the others. <laughs> Brian, appreciate you taking the time. This was fantastic stuff. We'll be checking in with you throughout the year at Blue Gold Illustrated.